Thanks for joining us for the City Church Podcast. More information on City Church is available at www.ourcitychurch.org. Y'all doing okay? Good. Well, welcome. If you're new here, my name is Justin. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Very excited that you have decided to join us this morning. We are starting a new series in the Bible. Uh, It's a shorter series, and you know, um, honestly, my heart wishes that it were a longer series because this one is just really, really fun, and it's called The Shadow Proves the Sunshine, and we're going to uh, jump right into that in a second. Uh, I am just, um, you know, excited to be home with you guys. This weekend, I was in Boston, and uh, I preached three times yesterday at two different conferences, and it was awesome. I saw just people encounter Jesus in all types of incredible ways. It was really powerful, Uh, but you know, honestly, the whole time, I was just... um, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about you. You have my heart. So um, if you have a Bible, you can go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to jump right in to the story that we find there. Um, if you know a little bit about Bible history, let me give you just a flyover view. God chose to reveal himself in the Old Testament primarily through a family. Started with a guy named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And they have a child by a miracle named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons that then go on to become the 12 tribes of Israel, which form uh, the Hebrew people, okay? Now, Joseph leads the people of Israel uh, into Egypt, okay? And so uh, Joseph is put there by God to protect God's people. It's an incredible story. We'll study it another time. But what ends up happening is all the people of Israel move to Egypt in the middle of a famine. And so the people of Israel move into Egypt, and... uh, It's wonderful for a long time, but after Joseph dies, the leaders of Egypt forget about the importance of Joseph and how wonderful of a person he was, and they begin to oppress the Hebrew people. So the people of Israel go from blessed and, you know, excited to be in Egypt to slaves, all right? And this slavery lasts for 400 years. And the entire time, 10 generations, 400 years... People are crying out to God, saying, God, would you deliver us? Would you deliver us? Would you deliver us? And so God hears their prayer, and he calls a man named Moses. And he calls Moses to approach Pharaoh and say, let my people go, right? And so Moses goes to this leader of the largest empire of the time, and he says, I want you to let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to do that. And so back and forth, back and forth they go. Nine times Moses appears to Pharaoh, and nine times he threatens Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, if you don't let the people go, calamity is going to come upon the people of Egypt. You know, you're going to suffer judgment for your pride. And so thing after thing after thing, nine plagues come against Egypt. And then the tenth plague is warned. And he says, if you don't let the people go, This plague is worse than any other plague that's come upon the land of Egypt. And he says the firstborn son of every single family will die tonight if you do not let these people go. And the pride and the arrogance of Pharaoh stops him from permitting this. So we're going to pick it up right there. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Here we go. I'm going to read a significant portion of scripture, so stay with me today. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year for you. Now what's happening here is God is speaking to them about what's going to happen 
through this judgment that's going to come upon Egypt. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he, sh- uh, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one can eat. You shall take your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take one, some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. If you don't know what a lintel is, that's okay. Neither did I. It's the area right above the door. Okay, so you got the doorposts, and then you got the lintel. Okay? And so it says... Uh, it shall eat, they shall eat of the flesh that night roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. And I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skip down to verse 21. Then Moses said, called to the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood. Hyssop was a, was a plant. That, in, that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to read the scripture. Thank you for this opportunity to see Jesus through this story. God, we welcome you into this room. I know every single person in this room comes with uh, different circumstances in life. Some of us stressed about money. Some of us stressed about relationships. Some of us feeling far from you. Some of us just needing that fresh word from God. Some people don't know you here, Lord. And some people know you intimately, God. And I pray that regardless of where we are, that you would reveal yourself specifically and personally to each one of us. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, God. None of us are interested in hearing words from a man. So we ask in full confidence that we would hear words from God today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Do you remember your babysitters? Do you remember your babysitters growing up? Come on, everybody had babysitters, right? I mean, you know, there's that age where it's normal to have a babysitter when you're four, when you're five, you know, when you're six. But then you get to that age where it's like you're nine, you're 10, you're 11, and you're right in that in-between time. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I kind of still sort of need a babysitter, but I kind of don't really need a babysitter. And, you know, how does this whole thing work? I remember, you know, as a kid, my parents were divorced and... uh, and, you know, my mom worked as a nurse, and so she worked all kinds of crazy hours at times, and so we had numerous different babysitters, but our favorite babysitter of all babysitters, which I kind of spurned that word because I was like 10 years old, you know, and I had a babysitter, you know, a, somebody's going to sit on me, he's a baby, I don't want to be a baby, I don't want to be sat on, so all of that was just not good for me, but, you know, um, the favorite babysitter that I ever had was my cousin Dave. 
So I just want to explain to you Dave for a moment, okay? Dave is probably six foot three, kind of a thicker, bigger guy. He's a quiet guy. He's, uh, you know, he's kind of a, kind of a quieter guy. He's, um, you know, kind of keeps to himself, you know, drove a Ford Taurus, you know, kept life simple. And, uh, you know, Dave loved comic books. He loved to read comic books. He loved to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, do all the, you know, play Dungeons and Dragons, you know. Um, he was kind of a quieter, you know, uh, you know, he wore glasses and, you know, uh, sweaters. And, you know, Dave was just sort of a quieter, you know, type of guy. And, um, and so he's introduced into our life on a consistent basis. He was always my cousin, but um, I got to see him a lot right around this age of nine, ten years old because um, we started, you know, he started babysitting for us consistently, and we just, me and my brother just, just began a great relationship with Dave, and you know, if, when you have those babysitters that you just really connect with, it was more like a big brother, like a big, bigger brother, because I have an older brother already, but you know, and we would go, and we'd do this stuff, and you know, Dave would take us to comic book conventions, you know? And I was never into comic books before Dave came along, and all of a sudden, I'm buying Wolverine and Silver Surfer, and I still have some, limited edition number one, by the way, but, you know, like, I just, you know, I just, uh, you know, started getting all this stuff and getting involved in this whole world, and the, the favorite thing that we used to do with Dave is we would say, Dave, would you tell us a story? And see, Dave was a storyteller. He loved comic books, and he loved reading, and he loved to tell stories, and so Dave would tell us these absolutely terrifying ghost stories in the middle of the night, okay? And so I remember this one time, we decided to walk around my neighborhood, and it was just a normal neighborhood. We'd ride bikes there every day. It was a fun place for kids back in the 80s when you could do that, and people didn't kidnap you as often, you know, but now you can't. But, you know, back in those days, we didn't wear helmets, and, you know, and uh, when we rode bikes, and those were the good days. But we... uh, we were walking around this one night, and uh, it's raining outside. It's the summer, middle of the summer. We're walking around, and he starts telling us this story. And I can guarantee my brother's 32 years old, about to turn 33. If I called my older brother today in Los Angeles, California, and I said this one simple sentence, I could tell you that he would immediately remember. I was probably eight years old, nine years old maybe. And Dave told us a story about what he called thump drag. And it was this killer guy that would walk around and... Thump, drag, thump, drag. And I remember walking around my neighborhood, and he's walking through, and I could still see it in my mind, Dave's foot hitting the ground, in the water, and then drag, and then in the water, and then drag. And we're walking through a neighborhood that I grew up in, that I spent most of my days riding my bike in, and all of a sudden, this neighborhood was transformed into a ghoulish terror center, you know? And I'm walking around like, thump, drag, thump, drag, thump, drag. And if I called my brother today and said, hey, remember thump, drag? He'd be like, oh, yeah, I do. Because it was just one of those stories that just dominated our childhood from that day forth. Anytime we heard a thump, we're like, where's the drag? Where's the drag? You know, like, it was constantly something, you know, inside of us. And I look back at that season of my life, and that season birthed in me a real love for story. A real love and a real passion and a real joy in the area of story. And whether it was, you know, Silver Surfer finding how he became Silver Surfer or Wolverine digging into his past when he became Weapon X. I realized that there was something inside of me that was just hardwired for story. That I desired this, that I longed for this. In fact, what I would, uh, you know, propose to you today, that the entire world is hardwired this way. That each of us has this longing, this innate ability to wrap our minds around truths through story. Where does this come from? C.S. Lewis said it like this. He spoke of a story, if you know he is one of the great Christian writers, he said that he spoke of a story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. 
You know, and the Bible really is a collection of stories, isn't it? It's a collection of different stories written by different authors, all inspired by God. This collection of stories. So one author in the sense that God breathed upon all these stories, but numerous authors in the sense that human beings were used at different seasons, at different stages in life to write the stories. And they're all woven together in this supreme meta-narrative. Okay, And so what we see in scripture is we see multiple little stories, but in every interaction that God has with humanity, we see him hinting and showing and pointing and guiding and revealing a larger, grander, bigger story. In Colossians chapter 2, speaking of the law, the apostle Paul says, these, that's the law, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, this is kind of a crazy idea. All throughout the Old Testament, God was interacting with people within their story, right? So there were actually Jews actually living in Egypt, actually oppressed by a king called Pharaoh, actually trying to get out. This was an actual historical reality. So these things were happening, and that's, that's real, but God at the same time, as he's interacting with the people through that story, is also interacting with them in a way that displays a grander, larger story. You know, when I started to see this, it was one of the great encouragements to my faith. Because I began to realize that the nuanced, specific ways that God is revealed in the Old Testament actually proves the glory and the claims of Jesus in the New Testament. Those shadows prove the sunshine. B.B. Warfield, one of the great scholars, he said the Old Testament is a room fully furnished but dimly lit. In other words, what he was saying is he was saying, listen, the Old Testament has got all the aspects of the gospel, but it's darkened. It's got shadows. It's hard to see. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. He said, God's manner of speaking in creation is to make inferior things shadows of the superior and most excellent outward things shadows of the spiritual. In other words, he was saying there are greater and higher realities that God has chosen to picture through human lives. Isn't that unfathomable? So in other words, the Bible describes Adam as a type or a shadow of Christ. That's why the Bible in Romans 5 calls Jesus the last Adam. It says he's a type of Christ, right? And so Jesus, when they say, give us a sign and show us that you truly are from God, he says, I'll I'll give you no sign except the sign of Jonah. Okay? You're going to get eaten by a fish? But what he was saying is, I'm going to die for three days. And then I'm going to be let out of that prison. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Jonah's life and what experience he had in that fish was actually a picture of what would happen in Christ. This is why John the Baptist, and this is weird for us, because we have these analytical, you know, enlightenment, you know, postmodern minds that are all sitting in this room. And we like to think of things very linearly, but God has a much broader story that he paints for us. In fact, he's hardwired us to learn truths through story. And so in his sovereign plan, he decided to write his story through numerous stories before he revealed the story. I think that's cool. This is why John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's kind of a strange thing to say. I mean, can you imagine walking down the street and somebody just go, donkey, that's a donkey. You know, that's a lamb. 
You know, it's like, no, it's not. He's a man. He has brown hair, not little fluffy tufts of white wool. Like, that's not a lamb, John. You need to chill out and stop eating so many bugs. You know, it's like, no, that's a lamb. That is a lamb. What was he saying? He was saying that the lamb was a picture. So whether, listen to me today, so whether it's Abraham's ram in a thicket caught in thorns that becomes the sacrifice, a picture of Jesus the one who wore the crown, or whether it's the prophet who's swallowed by a fish, or whether it's a bronze serpent that Moses lifts up, the serpent is the cursed animal, and it's lifted up, and everybody who looks onto that serpent is healed. Again, a picture of Jesus, the one who would become a curse for us. All of these things are pressing, pointing, revealing, clarifying Emmanuel, God with us, God with us. Paul, in dealing with some sin in the church, makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really, as you really are unleavened. And we can unpack that for the rest of the uh, morning, but we won't today because I want to focus on the second part of what he says. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What he's saying is that the story of the Passover that I just read you in in Exodus chapter 12 is actually a picture of Christ. You all doing okay today? Okay, just making sure. So let's look at this story. Let's look at this story and let's see some of the shadows that will prove the sunshine and will actually clarify and illuminate our understanding of Jesus. Does that sound good? Go back to Exodus chapter 12. If you have a Bible, we're going to start right back again. I'll pick it up in verse 2. I want you to see it today. I want you to see it today. He starts like this. He says, this month, this is the Lord speaking, this month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So in other words, what God is saying through this Passover lamb, And the Jewish calendar has been so ever since that that, that he's saying through this Passover lamb that this whole process of Passover is actually going to be the beginning of the year. You're going to start the entire calendar built upon this Passover. Why? Because he wanted, hear me today, he wanted to make the lamb the threshold into a new year. Okay? He wanted to make the lamb into a threshold for the new year. See, what he was referring to here, what he was revealing to us here, is that Christ would be that threshold into a new life. And the lamb would be the one that would inaugurate a new beginning. And so Jesus, this is kind of blows my mind, he says it's going to be a new year with the lamb. The lamb begins the year, right? And so Jesus supersedes time, steps outside of time, does an eternal act on the cross that is still as relevant today, 2,000 years later, for your soul than it was 2,000 years ago when he hung on the cross. And so this divine act that is for all eternity centered in the middle of human history begins all things which is an incredible idea it's an incredible idea that your life actually begins with christ that your freedom actually begins with christ and then they give us a picture of the lamb so you can go to verse three here a picture of the lamb and he he describes it specifically he says tell the congregation of israel that on the 10th day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house a lamb for a household 
Then he says in verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and they take it from the sheep or the goats. So he gives us a couple of pictures about this specific uh, lamb. And I want, to, I want you to notice today that the first thing that happens here is that God chooses the sacrifice, okay? He didn't say, uh, just pick whatever you want, you know, just pick whatever you want, and that can be your sacrifice, right? God specifically chooses the sacrifice. God says, I want a lamb. And so just as God chose the sacrifice through Exodus chapter 12, so God chose the sacrifice in Christ, that God sent his son, that God chose that he would be the, the, uh, the one to propitiate all of our sins. He requires that it's going to be a male. He says that this lamb must be a male. Why is that important? Because God began with Adam, and through Adam came sin, and through Christ, the last Adam, would come the redemption of sin. So it's critical that this is a male. And then he says it's without blemish, and that physical requirement is a picture of the spiritual requirement found in Christ, that he had to be sinless. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted, but without sin. And so Jesus steps on the scene as a male without blemish to fulfill the requirements of the Passover. And again, we see God writing his story through this story. So check this out in verse 6, okay? And, it sh- and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, you may have a note in your Bible, I have one in mine, that the Hebrew actually says they're between the two evenings. Between the two evenings. And scholars have debated this a number of times. It seems, though, that the tradition that was followed from this was that the lamb would be slaughtered typically between 12 noon and 3 o'clock the day of the feast. Okay, And so historically, the Jews would celebrate this Passover every single year. And so very often they would sacrifice this lamb between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock. They would take the afternoon to prepare the lamb, and then they would have a massive feast that evening, the evening of Passover. And so that was kind of the the tradition and the history. And and it's interesting that that's kind of the the system for 1,400 years, that the, the Hebrew Passover was celebrated this way. Now Jesus steps on the scene. And if you know your Bible, you know that it was the week of Passover that he is accused and condemned. In fact, it's the day of preparation by which uh, the day that he's actually sentenced to death. And he gets hung around that cross probably around 9 or 10 in the morning. And so he's hanging on that cross that morning, sometime in the morning. And, you know, when you get crucified, uh, typically it takes a, a significant amount of time to die. Sometimes, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours before you actually die. And so this, this man, Jesus, is hanging on a cross, and two people are hanging next to him. And the scripture tells us in Luke's gospel that at about 12 noon, on the day of preparation for the Passover, see this today, at about 12 noon, the sky becomes dark, and it remains dark until 3. And many scholars believe, hear me today, what was happening during the time that all the earth became dark and Jesus hung on the cross. As the sun was dying on the cross, the priests were slaughtering those lambs just a few miles away for the Passover. And so Jesus cries out probably around 3 o'clock, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. And some scholars believe that he actually died just as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, the Bible commands that none of the bones 
of these lambs should be broken. Kind of a random request, right? And so none of the bones of these lambs should be broken. And so why would God, you know, decide to do that? Because it was a prophetic picture of what would happen to Christ. When they came along the evening of the Passover, they didn't want any of the bodies of these men hanging on a cross to still be hanging on the cross during the Passover because that was unclean and an abomination to the Jews. And so they asked if it would be okay if they broke the legs of the men so that they would suffocate quicker. And so the Roman soldiers come along to break the legs of these criminals. They break the legs of the first guy. They break the legs of the second guy. And then they come to break the legs of Jesus and realize that he already died. And so there was no bones broken in Jesus to fulfill the requirement of Exodus chapter 12. And you say, well, okay, Justin, that's all very nice, um, but I really don't care that much about lambs and, you know, uh, all this stuff. Why are these pictures or these shadows so important? Because God wanted you to see something, okay? And this is what's important. So turn to the person next to you and say, you should pay attention right now. Come on, tell them, you should pay attention right now. You should pay attention right now. He wanted you to see something bigger than just lambs and traditions and seasons and days. He wanted to see something more significant, and it's found in Exodus 12, 13. Read it today with these thoughts in mind. It says, the blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Remember, he's picturing for us through this story the accomplishments of Jesus. And so he says, it's going to be the blood of this lamb that's going to be a sign. Now that word sign is very interesting. It's translated in other places a distinguishing mark, a signal, or even a banner. Okay, it's the same word that was used in the Hebrew when God spoke to Noah and he said, never again will I flood the earth. I'll give you a sign through the rainbow that I'll never do that again. It's the same word that God speaks to Abraham when he says, Abraham, you will be a people consecrated to me for all time. I will give you a sign in circumcision that will separate you from all the people of the earth. It was this sign that God wanted to give. Notice now that the sign is on the outside of the house. It's on the doorpost and on the lintel on the outside. So who can see it on the outside if the people are in the inside? This isn't a hard question. God. God can see it. God can see the blood. And that's why he says in verse 12, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. See, it wasn't about how the people on the inside felt. It wasn't about what the people on the inside did. It wasn't about how good the people on the inside had been. It was about if God saw the blood. And when God saw it, hear me, when God saw it, there was safety. When God saw it, it was efficient and sufficient. The efficiency of the blood. See, it wasn't the blood plus anything. It wasn't if you do the blood and do a dance. It wasn't if you do the blood and read the Torah all night inside. It wasn't if you do the blood and then do nice things to your neighbor. It wasn't if you put the blood and then you do this. It was just put the blood. It wasn't mixed with good works. It wasn't mixed with a feeling of remorse. It wasn't mixed with confession accurately. It wasn't mixed through personal accomplishments or individual piety. The only thing that protected these people was the blood. Friends, 
This story, that was terrible by the way, this story is shouting for us a truth. This story is shouting for us a truth that is so critical and so important for you to function as a follower of Jesus. And it's simply this truth, so you can write it down if you like, that the blood of Jesus is the banner over your house. That the blood of Jesus is the banner over your house. I said the blood of Jesus is the banner over your house. Friend, look at me today. You don't need to add anything to it. You don't need to accomplish things in order to be justified by it. You simply have got to apply it. Hebrews chapter 10, go with me to clarify what is being spoken right now. Hebrews chapter 10, if you have a Bible, I'm going to read verse 11 down to verse 14. Hear these words today. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. This is a picture of the Old Testament covenant between God and man where it was the responsibility of the priest to make these sacrifices on Passover and many other times throughout the season, and it would never take away sins. They make them again and again and again. And that, my friends, is a shadow and a picture of something greater. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single, hear this, sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And this is one of the most provocative verses in all the New Testament. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wow. Perfected. Made complete. Friend, the relationship you have with God is not built upon an unblemished male lamb. It is, that's just a shadow and a picture so that you would understand what God accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross. Friend, that on the cross, hear me this morning, that this, 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 this awakens my soul, draws me to tears, that on the cross, it wasn't the blood of a lamb, that was just a shadow. In some unfathomable divine act of God's grace, the I am who created the earth, the one who had designed the mountains and the stars and the trees and humanity actually became human. And in this fully God, fully man, Emmanuel state, the blood that ran through his veins was divine. And when he was nailed to that cross and that blood began to drip out of his hands and that crown of thorns began to press into his skull and his body began to die, that sacrifice on the cross was an eternal sacrifice that only needed to be made one time for all people, for all time. The blood of Christ was enough to wash away every sin. The eternal, the divine quality mingled with his humanity made Christ the perfect sacrifice for all time for you. So that when judgment comes upon the earth, and it's upon the earth at all times because of sin, when judgment comes, there is blood over your house. There is blood over your place. And nothing from the enemy can step through that blood because that blood holds up for all time. There's no sin too dark 
you say, Justin, I am in some dark sin. Friend, this is some strong blood. You say, I'm, Justin, I'm so bound up in sexual distortion. I'm so condemned. I'm so ashamed. Justin, I live in the, in the shadows of my own shame. I live in fear that someone finds out how crazy I am. I feel all messed up. I feel condemned. Justin, I'm in constant rebellion. You don't understand how many times I've rebelled. You don't understand how many times I've failed God. You don't understand how many times, Justin, I've done things that were wrong. Justin, don't you know I've been divorced? Don't you know I've been divorced twice? Don't you know I've lied more times than I can count? Don't you know that I had an abortion? Don't you know that I attempted suicide? Don't you know that I've mutilated my own body? Don't you know that I've hurt others? Friend, listen to me. This offends us. This blood can wash away murder. This blood can wash away child abuse. This blood can wash away all sin. You're here and you got this dark heart. You're saying, I've got this, this dark darkness in my heart. Where do I turn? You turn to the blood. You turn to the perfect blood of the perfect son that was sacrificed for you and you wipe that blood on the doorposts of your house and you realize that that blood marks you forever as one of his. Maybe you're plagued by the past. Wave the banner of the blood of Jesus over your house. Maybe you're condemned. When condemnation comes, friend, wave the banner of the blood of Jesus over your house. Maybe you're ashamed and that shame haunts you. I encourage you right now, wave the banner of the blood of Jesus over that house. Maybe you're entangled in all types of sin and you don't see any way out. Friend, take the banner of Jesus and wave that banner over your house because that will mark your house as one that is free so what do we do what do we do verse 22 verse 22 I want to wrap up with this Exodus chapter 12 verse 22 hear this today Exodus chapter 12 verse 22 look at this look at this with me this is the second half of the verse none of you this is so important shall go out of the door of his house until the morning do you see it today None of you shall go out of his house until the morning. You say, what do I do? Friend, look at me. You stay in the house. You stay in Christ. You stay in the house, in his protection, in his mercy, in his grace, in his favor. You stay in the house. Well, how long? Until the sun comes back. Until he returns, you stay in that house. You stay in that house. If the band wants to come up, we're going to sing a song in just a second. You stay in that house and you actually hold to that truth and you say yes to God. You say yes to his grace. You say yes to his truth. You say yes to his life. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledged his name. Stand to your feet right now. The fruit of lips that acknowledged his name. Let us constantly offer up, not a sacrifice of blood because there's no necessary need for that. The blood has already washed away all of the sins that you've ever committed. But instead, let us offer up a sacrifice. The fruit of our lips 
in praise to God, the fruit of our lips in praise to God for the next two minutes, for the next two minutes, you might say, Justin, this makes me feel uncomfortable. Justin, I don't know if I want to do this. Justin, I'm not sure if I can, you know, do this good. Justin, I'm not a good singer. I don't care about any of that. Right now, I want you, I urge you, when I say go in just a second, I want to urge you to begin to articulate with your own mouth the fruit of your lips as a sacrifice in praise to God. You might say, well, what if the person next to me thinks I sound weird? Look at me. Who cares? Who cares? There is one who has washed away your sins. There is one who became the perfect sacrifice on your behalf. There is one that you could never earn and you don't deserve. But if you just apply that blood today to your heart and to your soul, the guilt and the shame that haunts you, the thing that would try to rob your conscience of joy is washed away and you experience real peace. So for the next two minutes... I want to urge you to lift up the fruit of your lips to God. And you might say, it doesn't sound good. It sounds weird. I don't care. I don't care. You can sing. You can talk. You can say, God, I love you for the next two minutes. I don't care what you say. But on the count of three, every voice, every heart, every soul, with everything you have, I want you to begin to lift up your voice with the fruit of your lips in praise to God. Are you ready? One, two, three. Lift up your voice to the Lord. Come on, do it today. Do it right now. We hope you've been challenged and encouraged by this City Church podcast. Visit City Church at www.ourcitychurch.org.